Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When Diplomacy Fails presents Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Hello and welcome to Hello when Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails A project five years in the making the Franco-Prussian War the Seven Years War Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon The Crimean War To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I the Dutch Revolt To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War The July Crisis Anniversary Project The Swedish Deluge Britain Goes to War The 1916 To the Rising. Franco-Dutch War of 1672 This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the Boer War, which originally aired as one episode on the 5th of September 2012. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at episode 13, The Boer War. The Boer War was a critical transition period in British history. On the one hand, it was a success, and Britain's empire expanded into the south of Africa, edging ever closer to connecting both ends of the vast continent under a red imperial banner. On the other hand, though, the war played host to some of the most deplorable tactics, breathtaking examples of racism and striking displays of self-interest this side of history. Of course, in addition to these qualities, it was also an immensely fascinating war, and it still interests a lot of people to this day when they look back on this period and wonder about why exactly Britain was getting involved in wars in South Africa and didn't it always own South Africa in the first place? Well, not exactly. Five years ago, I didn't really know all that much about the Boer Wars and I feel like in some ways I know even less now, but 
there you go. It was the last real Victorian war as Queen Victoria would die like during it. And it was also the time Britain received a major military wake-up call, the likes of which it hadn't received since the Crimean War, arguably, because of the tactics that the Boers used, were just so different and un-imperial-like, the Brits didn't really know what to do about it. So as you know, When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon, and as you also know, this is a gift for you, because When Diplomacy Fails is five years old, and we're going nuts, we're going crazy, we're going mental, and all those things, but... We're staying sane enough to bring you content, two episodes in fact, every single day for five weeks, and we're able to do so, first of all, because for the last six months or so, even while planning a wedding, I'll have you know who says guys can multitask. I planned this out, I recorded things, I edited things, I rewrote scripts, I interviewed loads and loads of people, as you are aware and will become more aware of going forward in this special But I also worked my bum off in order to do this, and I'm not saying that because I want you guys to jump and support, so that would be nice. You know the drill, think of BeFit, go to wdfpodcast.com and become a patron, and you'll get access to loads of goodies. But I'm also telling you, so that you know, if you're listening to this right now and you don't feel like you can support or anything like that, monetarily that is, that's fine. All you have to do is tell someone. And while you're listening to this, I want you to enjoy it. I genuinely do, I mean that. I want you to enjoy this thing you get for free because you deserve to enjoy something that you get for free. You deserve to enjoy things because life is short and sometimes it's nice to just lose yourself in a fascinating era of history. So here's hoping we can all do that now. I will now take you to the year 1880. This plague of civilization ought to be abolished with all possible speed. Heroism on command, senseless violence, and all this loathsome nonsense that goes by the name of patriotism. How passionately I hate them. Albert Einstein The correct name for the Boer War is actually the Second Boer War, since in 1880 the First Boer War took place under practically the same circumstances, but with very different results. It gets confusing though if you can't picture the geography of South Africa in your head, and since that's where the fighting starts, I figure giving you a mind map before we even really start this episode would save us all a lot of headaches later on. So you know what Africa looks like, and obviously South Africa would be in the south of that continent. Well done. The states I'll be talking about, like the Transvaal and the Orange Free State, are probably names you've heard of, especially if you listened to this the first time around, but you're unlikely to be able to place them exactly in your head, so allow me to do that part for you. Imagine South Africa was detached from the African continent. It'd look almost like an upside-down triangle, right? Well, I think it would anyway, so if you've got that shape in your head, the rest will be easier to explain. Specifically, the British Cape Colony encompassed the bottom part of the upside-down triangle, so basically all of the point and roughly half of the entire shape itself It gets a bit more complicated now, as if you needed that in your life, because as we move inland, we're dealing with smaller states very close to one another. So pay very close attention, and if you don't get it, just raise your hand and someone will come over to you. Wow, that doesn't sound patronising at all. I'm just reading the original script here. The remaining three states are the Transvaal, and the Orange Free State, which we already mentioned. And the final one is called Natal, but it's not all that important to us. It's not that important since Britain annexes it very quickly, so it doesn't remain independent for all that long. By the way, for future reference, when I say that Britain annexes something, I mean the Cape Colony expanded to encompass those territories. 
So Natal, for example, was an independent coastal province. In our mind map, it would be on the right side of the upside-down triangle. Soon you'll see the significance of this, though, because the two states we already mentioned, the Orange Free State and the Transvaal, were situated in roughly the middle part of the upside-down triangle, and they relied on Natal's neutrality and favourability towards their states so that they could gain access to the sea, since they were landlocked. Once Natal was absorbed by Britain's Cape Colony, though, they were now effectively landlocked for good, which was just the way that Britain wanted the Boer states to be. But what does all this mean, and why have I bombarded you with all this info without introducing you to the key players first? Well, like I said, I do think, and I thought this five years ago and I still agree with my past self now, that knowing where this is is going to help you further down the line, and it'll help us all to understand the war better and be on the same page. But before we go any further than this, I want to explain more terms, because explaining is fun. Like the Boer War, why do we call the war such a strange name, and why can I never pronounce Boer correctly? Apparently, I don't know what way you're supposed to say it, but apparently I always pronounce it wrong, so there you go, we're gonna move on. What is a Boer, or a Boer state, and why did the British not get on with them? To put it simply, the Boers were descendants of the Dutch settlers, who had arrived during a series of mass migrations from about the late 15th century. The Dutch were encouraged to settle by the promise of land grants and the chance to start anew. The territories in South Africa remained under Dutch jurisdiction, and it wasn't until the Napoleonic Wars that things began to change. Once the British defeated the Dutch forces holding on to the Cape, or point of the upside-down triangle if you're consulting our mind map, the British seized the Cape Colony and claimed it as their own. This didn't go down especially well with the inhabitants there already, i.e. the Boers, particularly in 1834, when slavery in the Cape was banned, thus endangering the previous settlers' way of life. So they moved north and northeast in what became known as the Great Trek, and they settled into new lives outside the jurisdiction of Britain's empire. In doing so, they set up their own states. That's where the Transvaal, or South African Republic, and the Orange Free State and Natal come from. Natal was not long for this world, and it was annexed in 1843, but the Transvaal and the Orange Free State were recognised as independent states by Britain in 1852 and 54 respectively. Everything then seemed like it would be fine and dandy between Britain and the two remaining Boer republics, which by now were completely independent from Dutch control, despite the ancestry of the settlers. Then in 1867, diamonds were discovered in Kimberley, a small city on the borders of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. This caused a diamond rush to the area by foreigners from all over the globe, and the population of Kimberley began to skyrocket as its profits soared. British statesmen looked on jealously, and many imperialists, such as Cecil Rhodes, dreamed of expanding the Cape Colony to encompass both of the pesky free republics. The results of such dreams was the proposal by Lord Carnarvon, the British Foreign Secretary of the time, to create a federation of British and Boer republics along the same line of the 1867 federation in Canada, which had pacified the French nationals there and made everyone happy out. But the proposal was turned down by the Boer delegates, who didn't like the interest Britain was showing in their suddenly rich states, and wanted to be left alone. There was another reason why the Boers were wary of what Britain was planning too, since the Boers were all too aware of the presence of another enemy in South Africa, the Zulus. 
The threat that the Zulus posed was serious enough for the Boers to always be watching their backs when it came to making plans against Britain's growing imperialism. The fear was that if Britain did suddenly do something drastic, like, say, annex one of the free Boer states, then the Boers would not be able to do anything to stop them, as the Zulus would likely capitalise on any distractions. There was the added factor of the Zulus being quite friendly to the British in this case, because in a classic example of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, the Zulus were actively supporting the British in the hope that they would fight the Boers, and that while both sides fought the other, they would be vulnerable to Zulu attack. The Zulus could field an army 40,000 strong during this time, which was a considerable force if you considered the Boer equivalent. All throughout the subsequent years of conflict, the European settlers would be outnumbered by native Africans, and this time was no exception. Even without the full implementation of modern weaponry, the Zulus' fiercely effective warriors could easily tear through whatever small force the two Boer states could muster. Considering their size, the Zulus only owned a surprisingly small patch of land to the east of the Boers, but it was still dangerous enough to intimidate the Boers into a diplomatic course of action in 1877, when Britain did commit the drastic act that the Boers feared, and annex the Transvaal. Sir Theophilus Shepstone was the British governor of Natal at this time, and he had authorised the annexation of the Transvaal by use of a special warrant. Really, however special the warrant was, the British knew very well that the Boers would not like it, though the British also knew of the Boers' fear of the Zulus. Theo himself had in fact written on the 22nd of April, 1877, that Nothing but annexation will or can save the state and nothing else can save South Africa from the direst consequences. All thinking and intelligent people know this, and will be thankful to be delivered from the thraldom of petty factions, by which they are perpetually kept in a state of excitement and unrest, because the government and everything connected with it is a thorough sham. Although the Transvaal had been descending into anarchy due to its precarious position between the Zulus and the British, it was widely seen at home in Britain as a necessary move to preempt whatever designs Germany may have had on the Transvaal, since don't forget many German nationals had moved there during the Diamond Rush, and German statesmen were becoming interested in the idea of maintaining an empire in southern Africa. It was above all a case of naked imperial expansion, with the added incentive to incorporate the Transvaal coming from the belief that further hordes of diamonds would be forthcoming. It was just a kind of investment for the future, as well as an opportunity to make use of the chaotic and dangerous circumstances of the time, with some handy expansion into South Africa. Britain also wanted to ensure the stability of the trade routes to India, as well as ensure itself against any possible attempts by future Boers to retake the Cape Colony. The last fear was perhaps a bit ridiculous, but the justification for annexing the Transvaal was accepted to a large extent in Britain, while the Boers of course were furious. Theo began to worry about the unfolding situation in the Zulus, too, though, and he recommended action be taken to secure that place for Britain, and to ensure that the dream of a South African federation, all across our upside-down triangle in our mind map, actually came to pass. We don't know if Theophilus Shepstone was thinking about my mind map, upside-down triangle, it's very unlikely that he was, but what we do know is how things progressed from here as the British gradually ratcheted up the tensions with the Zulus and eventually provoked an outright war with them in the region. While grand plans had been harboured for the entire area of South Africa, and the military prowess of the Zulus had been infamously underrated, 
London saw its fortunes rapidly decline with the shocking Zulu victory at Isandlwana, when on the 22nd of January 1879, the British column was totally destroyed by Zulu ingenuity and cunning. British policymakers were appalled. Under no circumstances had the savage been given a fair chance, and the campaign was characterised by a series of lazy marches to various strategic points, until news of the disaster whipped the British contingent into gear. The British victory mere hours later at Rourke's Drift, where a British battalion of about 150 men held their walled position for nearly 24 hours against roughly 4,000 Zulu attackers, was the exact heroic tale that London needed, and much efforts were invested in hushing up the great defeat which had come before and emphasising the one at Rourke's Drift instead. After Isandlwana, though, British arms were more careful and tactical, and the Zulu homeland was soon overrun, removing the threat posed by its people for good and opening a new chapter in British-Boer relations in the process. There's a pretty hilarious side note that I feel I just have to mention here, involving what the British public thought about all these wars fought in the name of their sovereign, Victoria, and her ever-growing empire. Byron Farwell's book, Queen Victoria's Little Wars, is, as you can imagine, a brilliant account of the small colonial and imperial wars carried out under Victorian guidance that history has mostly forgotten. Byron Farwell wrote of the attitude of the average Briton in the course of the 1870s, The awakening at home to the extent, glory, cost and responsibility of empire gave rise to two opposite attitudes, jingoism and what might be called moralism. There was very much wavering between the two views so that at different times one or the other might predominate. The term jingoism came from the lyrics of a popular music hall song that well expressed the views of many, often. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
most of the British people. It went, We don't want to fight, but by jingo if we do, we've got the ships, we've got the men, we've got the money too. Benjamin Disraeli was the chief proponent of jingoism, pushing a forward policy of empire while the opposite attitude was held by moralists with a noble, savage approach to empire, whose chief spokesman, William Gladstone, was Disraeli's greatest enemy. Those that have listened to Britain Goes to War will recognise that famous Prime Minister's name, and they will also recognise that our coverage of the period stopped just before the Zulus came into the picture, and there is a reason for that. In the future, I'm going to give greater coverage to the whole Zulu debacle, which drove a stake through the heart of Disraeli's prestige-obsessed government. Regardless of the disasters and the bad taste it left, the more disconcerting fact about the whole campaign was the fact that the complete destruction of the Zulus by July 1879 paved the way for the Boers to strike. Ironically, the Boers' British enemy had defeated the other Boer enemy in the Zulus, and now the Boers, far from falling into line and accepting the terms of a federation which the British were so eager to impose, instead adopted a policy of outright military hostility, and in the process kick-started the first of two Boer Wars. When the Transvaal declared its independence from Britain, the war formally began on the 16th of December 1880. Shots ran out across South Africa and the conflict would rage for 10 weeks. The Boers, with no regular army, organised themselves into militias and they equipped themselves with whatever weapons they could grab, normally a hunting or civilian rifle, and took to their mounts. By contrast, the British wore red jackets if riflemen and blue jackets if royal artillery. Their uniform was largely changed from that of the Crimea 30 years before, and all were equipped with the Martini Henry single-shot breech-loading rifle with a long-sword bayonet. In other words, they stood out like sore thumbs in the desert, and the mounted Boer militias were able to inflict heavy casualties on the professionals before retreating and living to fight another day. Over the next two months, the British regulars marched to the various forts within the Transvaal which had been besieged by the Boers. They marched with little cavalry support and were thus highly vulnerable to ambush, which the Boers exceeded at. It was of course a recipe for disaster, and the Boers were able to achieve stunning victories at Lang's Neck on the 28th of January 81, Ingogo River on the 8th of February 81, and the Utter Rout at Mayuba Hill on the 27th of February 81. These battles were all the result of Major General Sir George Pomery Colley's attempts to relieve the besieged forts, and they all failed miserably. The British had been thoroughly humiliated by the irregular Boer militias, and although new Prime Minister Gladstone believed the war could be won if more troops and provisions were sent, he did not believe it was worth sacrificing any more resources in a war that had the potential to be protracted and messy. The last thing Gladstone wanted was additional disasters so early in his premiership, particularly after his loud criticisms of Disraeli's conduct overseas suggested that this new liberal administration would be less imperially minded. For these and a number of other reasons, Gladstone agreed to accept a truce, and on the 6th of March 81, a peace treaty was signed by Paul Kruger, who represented the Boer delegation, thus ending the First Boer War. The subsequent treaties and conventions in London solidified the status of the Transvaal as a nominally independent state, but still indirectly controlled by Britain, somehow. It sounds vague, doesn't it? But that was really the point, because it meant that British statesmen could later claim the status of Transvaal to mean whatever they wanted it to mean. 
This became especially important five years after the peace treaty, as gold was discovered in the Transvaal. The previously eager administrators in London, who had once been so determined to push for the absorption of the Transvaal and the Boer lands at the site of diamonds, were thus vindicated with the sight of another precious resource. Suddenly, the process of sending British soldiers to the other side of the world to extinguish the Boer Republics once and for all seemed worth it. A very interesting diplomatic event occurred in the years 1884-85 to when the great powers of the day met for the Berlin Conference. This was an international series of agreements and regulations designed to contain, maintain and clarify the existing European borders in Africa. The conference really demonstrated the extent to which the European powers had carved up Africa. In almost every theatre of the continent land had been claimed, and while the Ottoman influence on Egypt began to slip dangerously, Britain exploited the situation earlier in the decade and moved in, extending their influence southeast, securing their hold on the Suez Canal, and creating British Somaliland in the process. France was concerned with securing what had already been acquired, and to this end she used hostile action by the Barbary state of Tunisia, the last of its kind in Africa, as a pretext for annexing the country into her empire. Portugal, for its part, owned a vast amount of coastal African land, which would have been of obvious commercial and strategic benefit to her comparatively small empire. Germany was the dark horse in Africa, though, as she was late in playing the colony game, but still desired her place in the sun. Her moves worried France, as France had moved into Africa specifically to offset the embarrassment of defeat in 1870. But France was moving too aggressively in Africa, and her vast land grabs had annoyed and concerned Italy, who was also late to the colony game, but established her own colonies in Italian Somaliland and eventually Libya in 1911, most notably and infamously. Italy's concerns pushed her into the arms of Bismarck's Germany, who at this time was trying to create an alliance of states to isolate France. Bismarck was at the very least sceptical of creating colonies abroad, as Edward Crankshaw in his book Bismarck writes, He remained as contemptuous of all colonial dreams as ever. Though initially influenced by Austrian trade promises and swayed by imperialists in Berlin one year, he abandoned his colonial drive as suddenly and casually as he had started it the year before, as if he had committed an error in judgment that could confuse the substance of his more significant policies. Bismarck's apprehension at colonising is also tackled by the famous historian A.J.P. Taylor in his book Bismarck, the Man and the Statesman, when he wrote, Indeed, in 1889, Bismarck tried to give German southwest Africa away to the British. It was, Bismarck said, a burden and an expense, and he would like to saddle someone else with it. The opinions of Bismarck are important in this case, since Bismarck was clearly the driving force on the continent. Bismarck's issue with making a grand colonial empire in Africa included the concerns that it would distract German statesmen from their European duties, and such an empire would put him at odds with Britain, and that further hostilities could erupt with France over these overseas possessions before Bismarck's European diplomacy had secured the German position. There was also the belief that in order to protect the colonies in Africa, Germany required a high seas fleet, a prospect which troubled Bismarck because he knew that any such act would draw British suspicion. In other words, he was predicting the way German policy would go for the next two and a half decades or so. 
Bismarck's European policy centred on keeping Britain friendly and hopefully away from France, a goal which would be impossible so long as Britain felt threatened. Thus, to get back to the original point that I launched this Bismarck-like tirade upon, Bismarck believed that a conference involving all the states with interests in Africa should be created because it was the best way to avoid any future conflict there. If the German colonial empire had to be created, then Bismarck wanted to be sure it would not draw antagonism from those already pursuing the African colonial enterprise. But Bismarck was by no means alone in wanting to find a peaceful solution to imperial expansion within Africa. Britain was concerned at French expansion at the expense of their trade routes to India, and Belgian moves in the Congo worried Portuguese and British representatives, who saw the Franco-Belgian monopoly on the area to be a bad thing for all involved. The Belgian king, Leopold II, argued that free trade was the best option for all involved, but this excluded German interests in the region, as France wanted to discourage Germany from going any further on the continent, and was doing so by commercial and economic isolation. As if left out in the cold, it was then Italy's turn to become involved and offended, because Italy felt neglected from the deal and intimidated by the fast French expansion in Africa and the lack of consideration for Italian possessions, especially in Libya and Tunisia. As a result of these feelings, sometimes it's hard to remember we're talking about countries and not people, though I suppose it was the people that had the feelings and led the countries in the first place, but whatever, Italy appealed to Bismarck and protested that because Italy was part of the Triple Alliance of Germany and Austria, that Germany had to do something. So Bismarck made the conference. He invited Austria, Belgium, Denmark, France, the UK, Italy, the Dutch, Portugal, Russia, Spain, Sweden, Norway, the Ottomans and even the US to negotiate and debate on a world forum. The Berlin Conference laid out a number of points. Here are some of the most notable ones. The commitment of all to prevent the practice of slavery, the maintenance of free trade through the Congo, crucial for all trade agreements thereafter, and the demarcation of certain African borders. The 14 signatory powers would have to notify one another if territory changed hands in the future. For example, one could not just take what they wanted from the other. The treaty then mentions two interesting new terms. The first was the idea of sphere of influence. While this was hardly a new idea in European power politics, and we've mentioned it loads of times before over the past five years, especially in reference to this era in particular, its mention in the Berlin Conference made it official policy of all involved, and it was formally recognised as the most effective way to discern who owned what in Africa. The second term is a new one altogether, the idea of a principle of affectivity. This new principle stated that states could only claim land if they actually possessed them. In other words, they had to have an actual presence, administration, forces and series of agreements with the locals in place, as well as the flag of the state securely planted in the ground. This was to stop the nations of Europe making unrealistic claims on vast swathes of Africa that would destabilise the land and lead to conflict through the exploitation of other powers. With the conference out of the way, it looked like the situation in Africa would become less volatile and perhaps not even lead to any form of conflict. Small wars against the natives were occurring daily across the continent in various areas, but so long as these didn't spill onto the world stage and acquire the attention of any world powers, all would be well. That gold was struck in the Transvaal year after the conference in 86 seemed like a good thing for all involved. 
The locals got richer as more trade and income poured in, the population grew as prospectors settled down, and the Transvaal grew in influence and power as the gold propelled it onto the African stage. But it was not a good thing. You see, increased interest meant international interest, which potentially meant that the enemy of your very powerful neighbour would seek a monopoly on your trade. If your very powerful neighbour decided that this wasn't possible, or acceptable, then things could get very bad, very quickly. Britain was mightily concerned about what Germany and German merchants were doing in the Transvaal, and what German plans were with respect to the South African Republic. Many Boers were still unhappy with the outcome of the First War, and they saw the British exploitation of the ambiguity of the peace as intolerable. Gold all but ensured that the British would impose a tighter form of control on the Boers going forward. Keith Wilson wrote a book perfect for this podcast, The International Impact of the Boer War, which describes in fascinating detail the reactions of the major powers to the 20 years of simmering antagonism felt by the Boers towards the British and vice versa. His chapter on the German reaction to the Boer War is of special interest to us. Wilson wrote, British fears that, with Germany's influence thrown into the balance, the centre of gravity might shift from the Cape Colony to the Transvaal, were by no means unfounded. Nowhere else outside Europe were German investors active on the same scale. President Kruger's friendly feelings towards Germany were well known. It was no accident that Germans played an active role in the Republic as financial and political advisers. The government of the Transvaal gave preference to German contracts. Between 1886 and 96, the exchange of goods increased tenfold. At times, German investors were responsible for 20% of foreign capital investment in the Transvaal. The problem with the massive influx of foreigners upon the discovery of gold was that these foreigners now outnumbered the Boers in their own country. These expatriate workers hailed from Britain, Germany, the Netherlands and the United States, most notably, but the promise of gold drew in 60,000 foreigners to the country of the Transvaal, and these individuals set about working in the gold mines and establishing new lives for themselves in southern Africa, much to the chagrin of the 30,000 white Boer settlers already living there. The disparity in the local to foreign population created an atmosphere which the British colonial statesman, Leander Starr Jameson, believed he could exploit. You see, the plan was to lead a small expedition into the Transvaal, excite the workers there and help them rise up against the Boers. Then it was hoped that the Transvaal would either capitulate immediately or it would degenerate into a civil war, which could be capitalised on once both sides, particularly the Boers, had been exhausted. The danger to the Boers was high. The Oidlanders, as the foreign immigrants have become known, not Jutlanders as I called them in the original episode five years ago, look at me learning new pronunciations, Kozak. They actually outnumbered the Boers by at least two to one, especially in the city of Johannesburg, where the Boers had tried to cull the ambitions and independence of the Oitlanders by restricting their freedoms. Regulations were imposed in which one had to live in the Transvaal for many years before they were entitled to vote. The Oitlanders were also required to pay a higher level of tax than the resident Boers, particularly on gold, which, of course, was their lifeblood. These restrictions were resented heavily by the Oitlanders, and the government in the Cape Colony was advised to exploit and emphasise these grievances as much as possible. The plan was that Johannesburg would revolt, and that the planned Jameson Raid would restore order and a new system of government, 
hopefully annexing the Transvaal in the process. However, Jameson massively underestimated the gravity of the situation and the tenacity of the Boers. His blunder would make war between British and Boer for the second time almost inevitable. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.